You're listening to Real Presence Live on the Real Presence Radio Network. Join the conversation on our Facebook page or on Twitter. And be sure to like and follow us for more great Catholic content. Now, back to the show. And welcome back, Real Presence Live listeners. Nick Bedelski in wonderful, glorious Wasika, Minnesota, coming to you live this morning on Real Presence Live. Um, had a great interview with Lori Calgard uh, about the upcoming spring live drive for Real Presence Radio, May 11th through the 13th. And now uh, we get to move on to an interview with Joseph and Barbara Stewart, who have uh, put together a great book about, like I said, one of the most uh, probably momentous uh, events in Western Christianity, uh, the Reformation. Uh, but before we get to the book, uh, let's find out a little bit about our guests. So uh, welcome, Joseph and Barbara. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, and maybe we'll let uh, Joseph start. Sure. Thank you, Nick. Thanks so much for having us this morning. And uh, yeah, so my name is Joseph Stewart, um, Dr. Stewart at the University of Mary, where I'm head of the history program there and a fellow in Catholic Studies. And originally from Michigan, and I moved here about 12 years ago and met my wife, Barbara, here. Awesome. Uh, Barbara? <laughs> Good morning. Um, yep, I'm Barbara Stewart, married to Joseph. We've got three kiddos, um, born and raised here in Bismarck. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm just really excited about this book <laughs> that we got to work on together and a chance to share and talk about it for a little while. Awesome. Uh, so, uh, Barbara, could you tell us a little bit about the book? Um, sure. Okay, so the name of the book is The Church and the Age of Reformations, and it covers the time period of 1350 to 1650. Now, the book is part of a series. The tagline for the series, which I think is super awesome, is uh, Reclaiming Catholic History. The series editor is uh, Mike Aquilina, and part of the, mm. the object of the series is to just kind of look at these different epochs of history here and, and really just delve in deeply um, and not, not not too deeply, so that it's like all the little tiny details, but enough so that you're you're getting some of the behind the scenes stories to some of the stuff that comes up when you're talking about your faith. Um, the way that the books are structured, I really appreciate how Mike had this uh, laid out. Is that there's little sections within them that address certain things in the faith, like theological points or apologetic points that are sometimes disputed or questioned. So there's these nice little asides that can tell you, like, just little blips that help help you explain the faith. And then there's also spotlights on different saints within the context of the time, in addition to all of the of history that's surrounding all of these events and giving you an in-depth look and giving you, really, the chance to reclaim Catholic history, to be able to look at the story, make it your own in a, in a different kind of way, in a, in a closer, deeper kind of way, and then be able to go out and hopefully share it with other people. Awesome. Um, so, uh, Joseph, uh, what inspired you guys to, to write this book, and, and why should people be inspired to read it? Sure, yeah. So, well, I guess I've always been just interested in contemporary Catholicism, especially since Vatican II, and, and just the way that there's this different like divide over what Vatican II meant and what reform looks like. I mean, you almost get, like, warring parties right within, you know, our, the same church about what reform should look like. And so the idea was, well... What if we could look at reform in a different time in history and just see like how people dealt with it then, and what what made it so difficult um, to figure out which way forward was the best? Um, because you know that's just sort of like the deep history, the deep background behind our own struggles and confusions today. And so, what could we learn about like the true principles of of reform if we can just go back and and see what it looked like in the 1500s? 
Awesome. Yeah, uh, that's that's something I always try, and I, I teach uh, middle school history uh, with an online homeschooling program, and that's Great. something I always try and instill in my students is that that's the reason we we study all this stuff. It's not so you remember the boring names or the boring dates. It's that you, you understand yeah. what what uh, what what uh, errors we've made in the past, what good things we've done in the past, and how to translate that into to what we're looking at now. And like you said, you know, after the Second Vatican Council, there was uh, reforms following the council, then you've had the reform of the reform, and now they're talking about a reform of the reform of the reform. So uh, reforming, right, uh, is something that's uh, that's been on a lot of people's minds, and so it is a timely, uh, uh, a good time to look at this time period and, and what we can draw from that uh, in, in positive things to look forward to and like you said kind of kind of best practices uh things to look at yeah. moving forward um so uh, uh either one of you uh can jump on this one so what are the the principles of true reform and how does it relate to the saints sure well so we we discovered that that, that there's a major thinker actually around the vatican two time uh, named Eve Congar, who attended the council and, and wrote a book actually on this this very question of of reform in in the church, and it was just such timing um, by the Holy Spirit, it seems to me, right at the time of Vatican II to have some clarity about that. And um, so we what we thought we would just take his framework and introduce it just very gently into the introduction to show, okay, here are some true principles that help can like guide us in how to interpret this this deep history of the 1500s. And so those just very simply, and we can go into these in more or less depth as you'd like, but. Four principles of true reform, right? The first is charity. So reform has to be done in charity for other people. Uh, mm. Unity. So unity between, like, the magisterium and then, like, what Kongar talks about, like, the periphery, which means, like, the lay people and the theologians, the people who are often trying to, like, push change over something, uh, whereas the magisterium is usually trying to keep things the same. There's sort of a healthy tension between those, and there has to be mm-hmm. unity between those. So charity, unity, patience. We can't expect perfection. We can't expect to do it ourselves. We have to trust in God. Um, we have to be patient. We can talk about lots of stories about what happens when people are not patient, but anyway, we'll get there. So charity, unity, unity patience, and then tradition. And this is the idea of tradition in a, in a, um, a fullness of its sense, the rich sense of tradition, where it can develop, like according to John Henry Newman, what he talks about, like the development of doctrine. It's not just something static, but it always is faithful to the original deposit of faith given, given by Christ. So those four principles, charity, unity, patience, and tradition, helps, like, structure um, the theology of our book and the history, too. Awesome. Uh, Go ahead. Sure. I was just going to say, one of the first saints that we focus on in the book, in the text, is Catherine of Siena. And she is an amazing example of some of these principles and work. Um, because she she had a pretty big task ahead of her. Of course, that was during um, the time when the Pope was not in Rome. He was It was during the Avignon Papacy, and he wasn't where he was supposed to be, he was over in France. And so she very much had a conviction that he needed to go back to Rome to be the figurehead there and to serve the people from the seat of Peter. Um, and her, her way of doing it was very, um, I don't want to say blunt, but very forceful compared to what we usually imagine the saints to be like. But she was really, she challenged him. And there's a quote in the book where she said, up, Father, like a man, and go back. And it wasn't an easy task for him to be going back to Rome. We don't, we forget sometimes how difficult travel was back then and the kinds of dangers you could encounter on the road and, and those kinds of things. And so it wasn't a simple, you know, hop on a plane, I'm back in Rome kind of thing. But uh, she did. She kept after him and she, she, 
never trespassed his authority, though. And that's the important part, is the unity. She preserved the unity even as she challenged within it that there's something that needs to change here. You need to do it. You can do it. But she's going to submit to his authority. She's going to adhere to tradition and to not trespass on his authority. Um, and, you know, the charity part, fraternal correction, like I said, she was pretty bold in what she did, but she did it in love at the same time. And she waited. She did wait. She, she's an example, I think, of all four of them. She, she was patient. She waited for him to do what he needed to do. She realized she needed to fraternally correct maybe more than once. And, uh, and then she went from there. And so she's a really great example. The, throughout the rest of the book, there's several more examples of the saints and the ways in which that they um, adhered to these, these principles of reform. Some of them, you can see that a principle more clearly. Like, I think unity is most clearly shown with St. Catherine because of how she submitted to the Pope's authority. Mm. But you can see little strains of each one of these. They're kind of held all together and in balance when, when they're used and used well um, in reform, especially in the saints. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's so important to look at the, the saints during this time period because so often when we think of the Reformation, we think of, you know, Luther, Calvin, uh, Zwingli, the other, um, you know, Protestant, um, you know, uh, some people would even call them revolutionaries as opposed to reformers, right? Um, but uh, it's important to look at the saints who, like like you were both saying, uh, used those four principles, right, um, and were able to push for reform within the church in areas that the church needed it, right, that the... the, the the humans within the church, I guess, right? We should be careful mm-hmm. with that. Um, but that uh, through this, they were able to push uh, for for things that did need to change for them to happen. And I think uh, Catherine of Siena is one of those that uh, just, wow, I, I can't imagine. It, it, she's, she's just so amazing because, like you were saying, she, she kept pushing, very persistent, uh, but also very humbly and very... Um, like you said, submitting to the Pope's authority, right? Very respectful of Absolutely. the Pope's authority, yep. but also reminding him of his responsibilities, which I... Uh, mm-hmm. Not not know. backing down, right. Absolutely. Right. Mm-hmm. Which I uh, I think mm-hmm. I would have a hard time uh, with doing if I, <laughs> if I had to, had to uh, you know, correct someone to do it as, as charitably and, like you said, patiently, right, as she was able sure. to do. So sure. um, yep. we... We are going to head into a break here in a second, but uh, before we leave St. Catherine of Siena, uh, would you mind giving just, and I know it's it's uh, a huge event in Catholic history, so <laughs> we may go slightly over the break a little bit, uh, but just why it, was, uh, why it was important for the Pope to come back to Rome from France. Yeah, sure. So just briefly, the... The papacy had left Italy because there were a lot of infighting going on between different city-states, between the papal states and even within the papal states. So it was a really political turmoil was going on, for sure, um, in the early 1300s. And so the popes left, and they went to France, where it was safer, at least seemed safer, for the short term. But they kind of got stuck there, because they had a really nice palace, and everything was just kind of going along real nice. And, and Italy didn't get a lot better, but eventually people realized that, whoa, well, look, if the Pope just can move around, then he can be subject to different, like, political influences and powers and, like, yeah. you know, financial kickbacks and corruption and stuff. And so we got to get the Pope back from even if it's dangerous, simply because it's better for the, for the Church as a whole. And so that's what St. Catherine was really worried about. And I think it just points to this larger problem of corruption in church, even in the highest levels, before the, the Reformations broke out, all through the 1400s. 
I mean, there are no saint popes in the 1400s. <laughs> there, there, were, there were some real problems. And, and when Luther went to Rome to, as, as a visitor, uh, in the, uh, right in the early 1500s, I know he was pretty pretty shocked. He was sort of, you know, country boy goes to big city, and you're like, holy smokes. And it, you, you just start seeing, you know, what he interpreted, and often was, corruption. Um, and so that, yeah, helps to explain like, the explosion that, that happens with, him, with Luther. Absolutely, and and we'll get to Luther uh, a little bit, especially after the uh, after the the top of the hour, because we're actually going to be holding the two of you over uh, for a full hour uh, to talk about this uh, the topic, the Reformation, and uh, and different aspects of it, because it is such an important uh, an important period in history, and uh, one of those that I think is is so often misunderstood in our culture today. So I'm glad we get a chance to talk about it this morning, but. As I mentioned, we do have to go to break right now. Uh, Nick Medelsky for Real Presence Radio speaking with uh, Dr. Joseph and Barbara Stewart about their book, uh, The Church and the Age of Reformation. Stay tuned. This is Real Presence Live, where the focus is not on the evil around us, but on conversion and mercy through the good news that is always good. We're local, engaging, and live on the Real Presence Radio Network. The Mustard Seed Catholic Store is South Dakota's place to purchase Catholic books, gifts, and decor. With locations in Rapid City and Sioux Falls, we are here to provide you with gifts for the Catholic occasions in your life. From baptism to First Communion, confirmation to weddings, and ordinations, we pride ourselves in having local artists share their creative talents, making rosaries, crucifixes, artwork, coffee, and books. We are located in Rapid City on Main Street, in the new Diocesan Building, or in Sioux Falls on Grange Avenue across from Costco. Hello, this is Mike Kidrowski, the Director of Advancements for Real Presence Radio with today's Plan Giving Minute. Philanthropy is an expression of your generosity with the understanding that your gift to the church will make a difference. There are many ways in which you can make a gift to further God's work. Most of us are familiar with cash gifts we give regularly to Real Presence Radio. However, another way of contributing is through Plan Giving, which may allow you to give more than you've ever dreamed possible. The goal of plan giving is to help you plan your estate and charitable giving in a way that benefits you, your family, and our mission. There are several ways you can make these plan gifts and enjoy tax and income benefits. For more information, please visit our plan giving website at rprlegacy.org or call me at 701-290-4503. Let's get started. At the University of Mary, we offer an education for the whole of life. Our values-based, flexible, and affordable education will prepare you for success and help you become a leader in your field. Whether you want to start your degree for the first time or continue your education, whether you are a working professional or want to pursue school full-time, join us for an education that will help you make a positive impact in our community. Discover the Mary difference. UMary.edu. That's UMary.edu. This is Real Presence Live on the RPR Network, bringing you stories of faith and hope through local hosts and guests from across the Upper Midwest. Now, back to the show. And welcome back, Real Presence Live listeners. I think I've said welcome back every break so far, so I'll have to change it up next time around. Uh, but if you're just tuning in, we have Joseph, uh, Dr. Joseph and Barbara Stewart on the phone uh, talking about their, their book about the Reformation and trying to make uh, this period in 
church history accessible um, and and exciting, um, you know, for the modern reader. So because it is such an important part of history. Uh, in fact, uh, as I mentioned uh, going into the interview, it's had a profound impact on Western Christianity, uh, but also it's really had a, a profound impact on the course of modern world history. Um, could you share a little bit about that and explain that? Sure. Yeah, thank you. So this book, uh, The Church in the Age of Reformation by Ave Maria Press, um, just came out a couple weeks ago, and, and we're excited to, to just be able to have this chance to talk about it. So one of the things that um, we notice in the modern world is just this, this sort of fragmentation of Christianity. We get lots of different um, churches and denominations, and so that's created a, a new situation in which we have to learn how to understand each other, um, and get along, and, and we haven't always gotten along, unfortunately, uh, which is, is a theme so that we can talk about maybe maybe in a little while, the relation between religion and, and violence that happened after the Reformation mm-hmm. and, and how we've dealt with that. But um, but one of the things that's, that we can maybe talk about now, it, it's toward the beginning here, is, is looking at the, the culture of, sort of the literate culture of modern times and the oral culture. So this is mm-hmm. a big contrast that we try to make in this book, and it's what it means is that before the Reformation, the faith, it was through catechetics, was usually passed on through ritual and through do, participating in, you know, pilgrimages and, like, doing things, you know? Hmm. Uh, or see, maybe seeing, you know, beautiful stained glass windows and things, but there wasn't a lot of literacy right. amongst the population beforehand. And so what we call, historians and anthropologists call this an oral culture, and that has a particular catechetical, catechetical method that's attached to that. But, Nick, what's really interesting is that right before the Reformation, there was a new technological shift, kind of like our own digital age. This mm-hmm. was a technological shift that affected communication uh, in a huge way, in a profound way, and that was the beginning of printing, which started kind of in the 1440s and 1450s. And what's just really interesting is that all of the Protestant reformers were young when they started their movement. They were in their 30s, and they were products of that new, like, text-based culture, this new what we call literate culture. So they were born in the 1480s and 1490s, and they were the first full generation to really experience that new culture. And so that really affected the way that they began to communicate with each other through, um, through text and with their followers through text, rather than through like this old, more oral method of the oral culture. And so this kind of dichotomy between these two cultures has, has definitely lasted into our, uh, to our own times, and I think helps us to understand kind of the, the way that Catholicism bridges, actually, between those two cultures. But sometimes the, the modern mind has difficulty um, understanding these old oral tradition ways, mm. um, because they're very bodily, they're, they're very much about ritual, and, and much of modernity has kind of rejected a lot of that, especially in our digital age even more so. So there's this right. kind of connection between this rise of this text-based culture and this new kind of digital culture today. Yeah, uh, uh, absolutely, and it's uh, it, and it's a, a good a good parallel. I think a lot of us can can grasp uh, that uh, you have this this two uh, the two generations almost right, uh, like you said, one that's uh, part of this more uh, text based uh, evangelization versus not versus, but you know, as opposed to or in contrast to this more oral and. Uh, physical and personal, I guess, uh, evangelization. So that's definitely something that comes up. And the, uh, the reformers, especially Luther, uh, master, uh, the printing press and things like that to, uh, to help their, uh, right. help, help spread their ideas, 
uh, let's say, <laughs> to put it charitably. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, well, and what's interesting about it, too, and I think Joseph already alluded to this, but, it, I mean, it, it, changed, it changed the culture in a very specific kind of way. It became an emphasis on, rather than community, it became an emphasis more on individuality or the individual itself. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Not individuality so much, that's more so our time, but on the individual and the individual's ability to interface with with the text on their own. So you weren't reading Scripture in, in a congregation anymore, and that was your only time of being exposed to Scripture. You know, you were you were able to start getting the text in, in your vernacular, in your own language, and being able to sit down with them on your own. You know, outside of, of the preaching of, of, a, of a priest, or outside of these, these other influences that would normally help you guide or help guide you through these, these readings that she would be doing. And so you had, you had a massive shift, sort of, I would say, I'm even in a psychological level, that, that um, you're going from, this is a community-based thing more so, and we enter into this as a community and liturgy and all these different places, to more of an individual sort of, I can, I can do this on my own, which has its strengths. You know, your, your own spiritual and prayer life, beautiful, that can be amazing, but right. when you're entering into certain reading or things like that, it just, it just made a big shift that had a huge impact on the culture itself, from that community to more individual. Right, and it's uh, it, like you said, it's it's a great thing to be able to read scripture in our own language and everything like that. But when you take away that uh, that guidance uh, that um, you know is helpful uh, when people aren't doing it in a community setting with the the preaching of a of a of a, a priest that's that's uh, you know understands uh, the scripture and what they're talking about and can guide people through understanding that scripture. All of a sudden, you have people trying to do it on their own. It's kind of like. Um, how nowadays uh, with the internet, people have WebMD uh, to try and diagnose themselves, right? And uh, people, you know, diagnose themselves with all kinds of fatal diseases before going to a doctor and finding out, oh, it's just a cold. So, uh, kind, of, no, <laughs> kind of a similar thing. It's well, go ahead. Yeah, and one of the interesting things about it too was that the um, I think Joseph said this too a little bit that the that people weren't catechized very well at that point. They really did rely on liturgy back right. then, and, 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 and groups like that. They, they didn't have as much, they didn't have the catechism in the same right. way, and they didn't have the sort of learning that they could do, the theological work that they could do. So then you had someone like Luther or the other Reformers coming who had like this entire uh, you know, lifetime or years of, of study in these universities where they're, they are, you know, they're versed in these theological truths, they've spent the time, they put it in, but then you hand it to your average person out on the street and say, here, go at it. <laughs> you know, yeah. you're going to have some very different interpretations happening there. You're going to have some very lost sheep, if you will. But they're being told, do it, go for it, do it on your own. You don't need them. And it, it kind of, it caused a sort of warped kind of sense of the individual, I think, because it, it really, it disembodied them. Um, in a way, they weren't they weren't following the head. They weren't following the church in a certain kind of way. They were being told, "No, this is the way to do it now. Just do it on your own." And so that influence, I mean, it, it made a difference in the lives of a lot of people. I think, and in, in yeah, how they created, thought and approached the faith. It, yeah, it created like a catechetical crisis, and and that's really what's happening in the early 1500s. And this major shift, this major shift to modern history, where we have more of a text-based and now digital-based culture was something that Catholics had to adapt to, and, and we really kind of struggled for a little while to, to make that adaptation. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's and that's one of the things that comes out of out of the Reformation in, in approximate way is uh, is uh, coming up with those resources, right? Because there there wasn't really uh, a written printed catechism of the Catholic Church until Luther came out with his written printed catechism, right? Yeah, and they thought, right. okay, we get we gotta we gotta do something. We gotta we gotta come up with something similar, right? So, um, very interesting that. Yeah, that's uh, right. The, you know, there's this huge, huge shift, and, and in ways that that shift forces the church to react, right, um, and uh, and start working on some, <laughs> start working on some of these things, and and address, you know, a modern reality. That's right, and the difficulty, you know, the, the, the in many of the the leaders of the church were used to, you know, their traditional ways, and now needing to sort of almost share that like catechetics with more of the laity and. And in a more like with printing presses and sort of giving books, it's sort of a risk, right? They didn't know what, what direction that was going to head at the time. Um, so, is this does it does it automatically lead to you know rejection of the faith if people like are reading the Bible on their own? I mean, they weren't sure at the time, so they they had to right. take some, some big risks. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of a lot of big risks involved in that, and we'll uh, we'll pick up on a lot of this after the break. If you're just tuning in, Doctor Joseph uh, Stewart and and his wife uh, Barbara speaking with us this morning about uh, their book, "The Church in the Age of the Reformation," uh, just came out a few weeks ago um, from uh, Ave Maria Press, and uh, we're excited to be talking to them about it this morning. So stay tuned with us on Real Presence Live. Nick Bedelsky here in Wasika, and we'll see you after the break. Franciscan Media's Saint of the Day for April 25th. Today we celebrate Saint Mark. As familiar as we are with Saint Mark through his Gospel, many details of his life are uncertain. We do know that Mark is the writer of the oldest and the shortest of the four Gospels. Mark's account emphasizes Jesus' rejection by humanity while being God's triumphant envoy. His gospel was probably written for Gentile converts in Rome sometime between 60 and 70 A.D. We cannot be certain that Mark knew Jesus personally, but we do know that he was not one of Jesus' disciples. In the New Testament, a disciple named Mark accompanies Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, but for some reason he seems to have returned alone to Jerusalem. It's speculated that Mark somehow displeased Paul, But later Mark visits Paul in prison and comforts his old friend. Peter appears to have been a steadfast friend of Mark's, even referring to him as my son in one of his letters, presumably meaning a son in faith. Some think that Peter was an important source of information for Mark's gospel. 
Another tradition holds that Mark was the first bishop of Alexandria, Egypt, which may be where he was martyred. There's more about the saints along with inspiration and Catholic resources at our website, saintoftheday.org. From Franciscan Media, this has been Saint of the Day. Lent, a time of preparation, a time of spiritual growth, is an opportunity for us to experience real changes in our lives. Peter's first epistle speaks of our faith in Christ as an inheritance that is incorruptible. From our Catholic faith, we have inherited an immeasurable wealth for us to draw upon. In addition to the good news, the Church abounds with countless and inspiring stories of saints and martyrs, classical, spiritual books, encyclicals, and more. They are to be studied for our spiritual growth. St. Robert Bellarmine, an Italian Jesuit scholar and cardinal, is an example of study being key to following Christ, for he promoted learning and defending of the faith. Upon his death, his body miraculously did not decay, a reminder of the incorruptible importance of study in our walk with Christ. This has been a bit of Catholic encouragement from Michael Gisandi. SJ Machine, proudly named after and dedicated to St. Joseph, provides machining and induction heat treating to a variety of industries. Just as St. Joseph worked diligently to meet his family's needs, SJ Machine strives to understand and meet our customers' production needs. Prototype to production, working together towards success. SJ Machine can be reached at 701-347-0155 and are a proud supporter of the Real Presence Radio Network. You're listening to Real Presence Live. Now, back to more inspirational and uplifting stories and a look at the extraordinary things happening in our local area. Heard right here on the RPR Network. Christos Voskres. Christ is risen. Happy Easter. Hello again on Real Presence Live. This is Nick Medelsky coming to you from wonderful Wasika, Minnesota, speaking on the phone with Dr. Joseph and Barbara Stewart, uh, talking about their their exciting new book. Uh, just came out a few weeks ago from Ave Maria Press, The, uh, the Church in the Age of Reformations. Uh, a lot of exciting things to talk about. We talked a little bit about the break, about what a momentous uh, shift this was in uh, Western civilization, and uh, talked about uh, just uh, just the idea of the book and, and kind of the, the four true principles of reform. And I know I wrote those down, so I'll bring them up again. Charity, unity, patience, and tradition, and how important these were in, uh, in making meaningful, uh, helpful, uh, constructive reforms uh, within the church. Uh, so one thing we didn't talk about yet is kind of what, uh, what, what kind of state the church was in. Why, why would people be looking to uh, reform things within the church around this time period? Sure. Sure, yeah, that's a great question. So the roadblocks to reform, like what were the big problems? And so by the late 1400s, there were three, three major problems. Uh, one we could call the, the temptation to politics, uh, the temptation to the flesh, and the temptation to art. Okay, so we'll, I want to take a look at each one of these because we had different different popes in the late 1400s who really struggled with these with these areas. Okay, so the temptation to the flesh um, with with Alexander the Sixth. He um, so imagine if the pope was sort of on the world media today. Um, pictures were taken of him hanging out with like the most beautiful Italian model. Uh, ever 
And they're like mm. hanging out and getting photo ops together. And then pretty soon there's kids that happen. And imagine like the scandal that would take place across the world. <laughs> right. So that was the situation, the temptation to the flesh that was going on in the late 1400s, for sure. Um, on the other hand, you have um, the Pope. Um, imagine, uh, imagine the Pope being somebody um, like Putin, uh, who is invading right. a country. Um, that's also what popes were doing um, in, the, in the late 1400s. And um, because they, they were temporal rulers, and so, I mean, they had, you know, legitimate political interests that were, you know, we've lost sympathy for that today, but were perfectly legitimate at the time. But the problem right. is, is when you have a pope leading an army, it's kind of scandalous. Um, right. And then lastly, it's the age of the Renaissance, and so you have lots of just beautiful art and scholars around, and so you have, like, Pope Leo X, right during when the Reformation was started, all of his attention was on basically funding different scholars and artists in Rome and just, like, encouraging that, like, culture of the, of the Renaissance, which, you know, isn't bad in itself, but maybe wasn't the best priority in 1517 when other things were going on, so. Right, right, and that's, that's kind of the, one of the, the overarching, um, like you say, the, the three temptations uh, that, that come about there uh, to, to focus on these three areas, and that's what you'll see in these popes, especially, like you said, this, these, uh, the 1400s there, uh, these popes leading up to the time of the Reformation, that they're either more concerned about uh, their mistress, right, uh, or uh, yeah. temporal power, like Pope Julius II. You know, if anyone's watched that movie, Agony and the Ecstasy, of course, it's a bit dramatized, yeah. but still you see him in his papal armor uh, <laughs> leading the troops in battle, which, like you said, um, hit legitimate political interests as a political ruler, but at the same token, kind of scandalous. And then you have popes who are more focused on uh, art and leaving an artistic legacy than on really, um, you know, uh, bringing souls to Jesus Christ, right? Which is kind of right. what, what, what the top of the job description should be. Um, <laughs> and thankfully, most, most of the ones in, re, you know, all the ones in recent memory have kept that in mind. Uh, but back then, kind of a different story. That's um, right. Yeah. So, uh, so there were there were legitimate um, legitimate uh, concerns, I guess you could say, and we talked about Saint Catherine of Siena uh, pushing for reform and getting the Pope back to uh, back to Rome outside of that uh, that outside influence uh, from from the French kings and things like that. Uh, what other saints? You know, it, I think sometimes people get the idea that the Church was just sort of, sort of sitting around until Luther and, and Calvin and, and others came along. That the church was kind of sitting around, and everyone's like, "Oh yeah, I guess there are problems. Maybe we should do something about it now." But that wasn't the case, right? No, it wasn't entirely the case. There were definitely people who were seeing that there were issues. Um, a lot of times, you saw it come or change uh, before that. Uh, it came in the way of, of religious orders. You had different people founding religious orders, like Saint Angela Marici, and she she focused on educating young girls. She was hoping to renew the family, mm -hmm. and she thought uh, she thought educating these young girls and focusing on the vocation of motherhood um, was a good place to start with that. She was in Italy there, and then you have different people like Saint Philip Neri, who who create he created the oratory eventually there. But in the beginning, he would just gather people together, and and they would sing and pray, and he would preach, and and so they would do these sort of smaller scale, but just really beautiful things. That, that God then took for years and years afterwards and, and rooted them deeply and, and, and bore fruit from them for, for ages afterwards. Because, I mean, even with Philip Neri, for instance, there's great uh, Catholic thinkers like um, Henry Newman 
know what I mean? That mm-hmm. um, he uh, he has the oratory as part of his story, and part of right. where how he was influenced. Um, Saint Catherine of Genoa is another one, but she's a really beautiful example of of living your vocation. She was married, the man she was married to. It was a little bit of a rascal, um, putting it mildly. Uh, so she put up with a lot in the first yeah. first parts of her marriage there, but she just she had a conversion, and she stayed faithful to God, and she stayed faithful in her work. She worked in the hospital there, eventually as an administrator, and she worked through the, the huge plagues that they had at the time. Eighty percent of the city uh, perished, and she, she stayed, and she worked, and she worked. Eventually her husband converted and worked alongside her, and she wrote about her own mystical experiences, and these went on to inspire other saints and other people. Um, so it's just, it seems like a smallness that was happening, but really God takes that smallness, and He just, He bears fruit for centuries afterwards with it, with these people and their faithfulness. Right, and like you, you mentioned the oratory, and that's still, the, the oratory is still around to this day. Um, you know, a lot of these, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Angela Marici's order is still around to this day, and they're still doing wonderful things uh, for the world and for the church. Uh, so these these aren't things that, you know, were little fizzled uh, attempts that kind of fizzled out eventually and went away. These are forces that are still um, helping keep the church on the right track, right, uh, and help keeping society on the right track uh, in, in a certain yes, way. very much right? so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so we can take all those examples, right, and then we can contrast them to uh, the the Protestant reformers, right? Um, so, mm-hmm. how, in comparison, Luther is probably the biggest name, right? He's kind of the poster mm-hmm. child and the one everyone's, you know, when anyone says Reformation, people think Martin Luther. So, um, and not Martin Luther King Jr. They're two different people. In case you, you know, some people, <laughs> some of my students, I teach middle schoolers, and some get confused. They're like, "Wait, Martin Luther King Jr. lived in the 16th <laughs> century? I didn't know that, but no." Not that I have a dream guy. This is the different guy. Um, so, um, but uh, how how did, well, I guess we'll start with why, and then we can go to the the how. But why did Luther, uh, why did he feel um, pushed uh, to push for a reform in the way that he did? Sure. Sure, yeah. Well, the first, I guess the first point maybe to quickly notice is that a lot of the reformers, I said earlier, were young. They're in their 30s when they started. And also, many of them were priests which who then became ex-priests, right? Right. So Luther was a priest, uh, Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland was a priest, John Calvin wasn't a priest, but he was uh, had priestly training for a while. Right. So many of these guys uh, were, were priests, they're educated in theology, they're educated in this new text-based culture, this new kind of modern culture that's emerging, and um, so they had a lot of status, because they were, they were the educated ones, so a lot of people, you know, looked at them. And so that's the first thing to notice that's a little bit shocking, I think, from the Catholic point of view. The second thing is, you know, as, as some of them, especially Luther early on, really had some legitimate concerns, particularly over indulgences and the way that um, indulgences were being sort of abused by, by different people, sort of the, the people who were distributing indulgences in Germany um, were, you know, kind of confusing the difference between uh, the free grace of God and buying the grace of God. And so he and others, and it wasn't just Luther, it was also other people around him were, were concerned about this, and they, they wanted to reform and said, this needs to change, this is an abuse, this shouldn't be happening. And so Luther, uh, that's the immediate issue that sort of propelled him forward. Um, but then uh, the other issue was for him was a more personal one, right? and this had to do with his approach to, to faith. So Luther's own story is kind of tragic, because on the inside mm-hmm. he seems like this good monk and this good priest, he's doing everything right, but he's going through a spiritual crisis. And a psychological crisis too on the inside. Deep, deep scrupulosity 
that he's dealing with and, and, and depression too, probably. And so um, he starts to just kind of reformulate faith out of this, this psychological darkness, a new, a new approach to faith, which some scholars have, have called it sort of a reflexive faith. In other words, it's sort of um, disconnecting from, from works, from, from charity and from the objective sort of surrounding church, and in more of a subjective sense of security, because that's what he longed for, right? So Christopher Dawson, a great Catholic historian, said this, mm-hmm. faith was no longer a human participation in the divine knowledge, but a purely non-rational experience, the conviction of personal salvation, right? The conviction of personal salvation. So faith sort of starts to turn in on itself a little bit, and um, that would be a result, even though Luther wasn't, wasn't exactly intending that, but it was he's trying to heal himself. He's trying to find a way out of, of his situation, and so that begins to shift toward this faith alone, this sola fide kind of theology. Yeah, and I think that's, that's something that uh, I think uh, before people start studying Luther the man, uh, they don't really appreciate that aspect of him, just how, how personal a lot of this was and how it was a lot of him trying to resolve his own um, difficulties, right? His own spiritual right. difficulties. And rather than, you know, like we were saying, the move from the uh, the uh, uh, community uh, uh, relationship-based, right, catechesis and spiritual formation that came before, moving to this right. text-based, uh, here you have Luther who rather than, you know... Um, Speaking more in depth, probably with someone, a, a spiritual father who could guide him through these difficulties, he he goes and starts uh, reading Saint Augustine and trying to read it in ways that that shifts things, um, that that helps him out, um, That's right. uh, you know, and resolve things in his mind, which which is kind of what what. Uh, uh, Calvin does in a way too, but uh, you know I don't want to don't want to you know there's still plenty to talk about with uh, Luther, so we'll we'll stick on that topic. But right now we're up against a break, so uh, if you're just tuning in, Nick Medelsky speaking with Dr. Joseph and Barbara Stewart about uh, their book about the Reformation, and we'll be right back with Real Presence Live after the break. Stay with us. There's more Real Presence Live to come on the Real Presence Radio Network. This is Dr. Ryan Sapo with Lumen Vision in Fargo. Lumen Vision specializes in pediatric eye care and vision therapy. We partner with a national infant eye exam program called Infant C, which provides eye exams for any baby under 12 months old. Many of the major childhood eye problems, such as lazy eyes, eye turns, and ocular diseases, can be detected in this early intervention exam. Infant C eye exams can be scheduled online at www.lumen.vision. Lumen Vision is a proud supporter of babies everywhere and a proud sponsor of Real Presence Radio. I always tell the, the new seminarians, you know, there's a good reason that we take plenty of time uh, before we step forward for ordination because, you know, you as a, as a young man, you need to discern if this is what God is actually calling you to. And, and the church has to discern as well if it's the right thing for you and for the church. And so we do. We take our time. We take several years, a number of years, really, and, and give, give these guys a, a chance to really grow in their faith and grow in their relationship with God. And and over time, it becomes clear whether, whether in fact, they are called to the priesthood. And we're very blessed by the, the men who do step forward, even if it's just to give it a try and to, to explore that call and see if it is what God is asking of them. And I've, I've again and again heard uh, men say that they're so glad they did that because it really enriched their faith and, and really changed their lives in many, many ways. 
Rose Management is a family-owned business that believes in good morals, doing the right thing, and treating our residents as family. Rose Management provides housing to complexes throughout North Dakota and Minnesota. All Rose Management's properties and our maintenance staff are in a centralized location in their cities. For questions, Rose Management can be reached at 701-237-6840 or online at rosemanagement.net. Again, that number is 701-237-6840. You're listening to Real Presence Live on the Real Presence Radio Network. Join the conversation on our Facebook page or on Twitter. And be sure to like and follow us for more great Catholic content. Now, back to the show. And welcome back, Real Presence Live listeners. Uh, Speaking with uh, Joseph Stewart and Barbara Stewart about their book, The Church and the Age of Reformations, that's part of the Reclaiming Catholic History series put out by Ave Maria Press, edited by Mike Aquilina. Great stuff. The book just came out. uh, Publication date was April 8th, so just a few weeks ago, uh, officially published. And uh, we're talking about the the Reformation and and how that uh, continues to impact us today and, and quarter, sort of the the, uh, the Catholic response at the time as well. Uh, so before the break, we were talking about Luther and kind of what what sort of drove him personally um, to uh, to push for reform uh, or what he saw as reform, right? Um, now maybe we can talk about the how. How did Luther sort of spread his ideas and how did he go from just being this one monk uh, in part of Germany to, you know, founding a denomination basically that's you know, all over the world today. Yeah, that's, that's a great way to put it. So two, two things there. One is technology. So it's, this is the new age of the printing press, and a lot of these early Protestant reformers were just brilliant at utilizing the printing press to spread their message. So thousands and thousands of pamphlets were churned out in the major publication centers across Germany and beyond, and that just flooded the market, and the Catholics kind of struggled at first to keep up. Um, and so that just got the message out really widely and, and really... Um, started the movement. The other factor, besides the press, was politics. So the Luther was protected by uh, a certain uh, German prince, and other ones, other Protestants were too. And so there was this kind of cooperation between these different political rulers who didn't maybe like some of the, the Catholic kings and things, and so they had a kind of a, a grudge against those higher powers anyway. So they saw these reformers as a useful tool to kind of push toward like a spiritual independence and a political independence sort of together, sort of mm-hmm. merging those two things together. And that sort yep. of legacy of sort of combining politics with religion, we also see, of course, with King Henry VIII in England, but it, we see it as a major theme coming out of this, this Reformation period. So politics and print, those were the, those were the house. Politics and print, that's, that's easy to remember. It's alliterative, so uh, people, <laughs> people should remember that. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, it, it's such a huge part of how uh, Luther spreads his ideas. Uh, right, is that he has this backing from princes who are like, wait, you know, uh, maybe I don't have to listen to everything the Pope says. Or, like you said, maybe I don't have to listen to these Catholic kings. Maybe I can expand my territory and have a kind of a, a veil of religion to uh, to uh, protect me there. So, um, yeah, definitely a big part of how, how Luther's ideas spread. And in some ways, I think uh, he gets uh, exploited by a lot of these rulers, too, yeah. um, and that they're, they're able to use him uh, for their political ends, um, you know. And, you know, um, 
it is what it is. Uh, so uh, Luther, though, is, like we said, kind of the poster child because he's kind of the first big name a lot of people encounter. Uh, but also Calvin and Zwingli are probably the other two big ones, especially um, as regards kind of the Reformed, what, what's called the Reformed uh, tradition, right, of uh, Protestant Christianity. So can we talk a little bit about them? Sure, yeah. So Ulrich Zwingli, he started uh, the Re- Reformation in Switzerland at about the same time as Luther did. Um, although it was a little slower getting going, so that's why historians usually talk about Luther first. But but he was a, a priest who um, then became an ex-priest and got married, and um, his main goal was sort of eliminating um, superstition, was the way he put it. But what, but what he meant was, like, eliminating anything material or ritualistic from Catholicism. See, he, he saw those things as corruptions. And so this is he's where he's influenced in his education, university education, um, doesn't only damage people today, unfortunately damaged people <laughs> back then. Uh, but uh, the Renaissance sort of spiritualism that was coming about through recovering of Plato and certain ways of interpreting that the spirit is good and, and flesh is kind of bad, right? And so we're like trying to yep. kind of escape from, from flesh, okay? So that, that philosophy was influencing the way he read the Bible, and so he, you know, denied the Eucharist because how could God become flesh or want to be flesh because he must not have meant that because he says that, you know, God is spirit and and all these sorts of things. So that meant that the sacraments are out, that meant that church art is out, we need to strip all of the beautiful art out of our churches, which they began to do in Switzerland. Um, Strip it all out, we're going to have this simple kind of worship where we just listen to the word that's preached and read the text, so it's kind of more abstract faith, and that's what he thought was reform, and that's the direction he pushed the reform tradition. Uh, Calvin picked it up, you know, there's a few differences, but Calvin picked that up too, and, and that's definitely influenced the modern mind probably more deeply than Luther, because Luther retained some of that medieval Catholic sense of ritual and sacraments, and, and even, you know, Mary, certainly it is important to Luther, and uh, the physical is, is still okay. And, but the Reformed tradition that moves towards this kind of abstraction and text-based um, has definitely been a huge influence on our own American experience. Right, and that's uh, you know we we can look at the the modern uh, branches of of the Lutheran movement today, and a lot of those have been very heavily influenced by the Reformed tradition as well, right? As opposed to maybe yeah. what Luther had originally um, intended, I guess you could say. That's right. Yeah, so, that's a good point. Yeah. So, um, but the Reform movement very, like you said, a liturgical. Um, against any kind of, uh, you know, iconoclastic in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and very mm-hmm. much focused on, like we said, moving to this text-based uh, culture um, where you just you just sit and listen to the uh, readings from Scripture and then have it, uh, have, you know, a big long uh, homily, big long sermon, and that's that's the the basis of worship in the Reformed tradition, really. Uh, so, yeah, that's right. Um, before we uh, finish up, we should probably talk about, uh, and we're, we're, <laughs> we're nearing the end of our time, so we, we don't have enough time to do it justice, but what was sort of the Catholic response uh, to these movements? Well, there were several legs of things that happened, but one of the major things that happened was the Council of Trent. And um, be actually sitting down in, in the council to address in a systematic way, how are we going to catechize the lay people? How are we going to catechize the clergy? How are we going to um, reach the different people? Uh, what do we want to do here? So that, that was a major thing that happened. And, of course, you have the catechism that came out of that. You had beautiful saints like, um, like um, uh, Charles Borromeo and, uh, you know, uh, that, that came out of that and were, were re- 
restructuring their their diocese and their their people so that what the people needed, what the lay people needed, could be had. And that, that's, I think, one of the main things that happened in Trent, is that the eyes turned to the lay people and said, okay, you know, like, here's our flock. What do they need right now? They're being acted on by all these other forces, all these other influences. They've got, they're, they're reading now more than they were before. They've got all these other influences, um, you know, leading them astray, like, to, quite simply, leading them astray. What do we need to do to give them what they need in order to live the faith? And it was just, it was really a recognizing that things had radically changed in the world, that the culture had changed, and, and, and answering that need um, and the needs that that presented. Yeah, absolutely. And probably the other big fruit um, on, the, on the Catholic side of things from the Reformation would be the founding of um, uh, uh, the founding of the, the uh, why can't I say words right now? The Society the of Jesus, right? The Jesuits. Yeah. There we go. Um, so uh, would you talk a little mm-hmm. bit about them? Sure, yeah. So the Jesuits were just the powerhouse of, of energy during this time. St. Ignatius uh, was going through his, his conversion during while the Protestant Reformation was widely spreading, so the quiet, you know, work of grace of the Holy Spirit was was converting the hearts of these saints in that kind of difficult period um, from 1517 when Luther started to the beginning of the Council of Trent in in 1545. Those couple of decades, I mean, it looks like Protestantism was unstoppable, and a third of Europe left the Church. And but quietly behind the scenes, uh, there the grace was working. Ignatius was converting, and other saints were con- were converting and dedicating themselves to God and and to the Church, and so the Jesuits, their particular um, charism was really different. In fact, they were seen as, like, barely even Catholic by other religious orders. <laughs> right. <laughs> because at the time, their idea was that we we need to um, go out into the world, and, and we need to, like, bring even good education and even secular t- subjects. So you'd have, like, priests teaching, you know, theater and pagan classics of ancient Greece and Rome. I mean, there were no religious orders who did that before the, right. the Jesuits. And they, they created free schools. Um, they, would, they would were so good at fundraising uh, that the Jesuits would have just free education. Anybody could go to an excellent Jesuit school and get a great education. And this helped keep parts of Europe Catholic. Like Poland, for example, was on its way mm-hmm. to becoming Calvinist. But because yep. the Jesuits opened up free schools across Poland and Protestant parents sent their kids, that converted the families and the faith, and then the Poland stayed Catholic to this day. So the Jesuits really played a, just a powerful role. And really, from from such uh, such humble, small beginnings, I mean, we they, they live so large in in the minds of conspiracy theorists and and other things, right? <laughs> but really, uh, a relatively small order compared to say the Dominicans or the Franciscans at the time. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Just starting out, that's right. Just just a lot of energy and a lot of. Um, beautiful art that comes out, too, that's connected to the Jesuits. The Jesu in Rome was the first sort of Baroque mm. church, and that's their headquarters, and that Baroque culture of beauty and how the senses and the physical can help lead us to God. I mean, that is just radically Catholic, and it's very different than the sort of abstract and more Protestant cultures. Right, yeah. And that's, uh, go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, one cool, really just personal kind of thing, um, St. Ignatius of Loyola, when he first started um, going after his faith, he went through a really intense time of scrupulosity and intensity, where it just, like, I mean, like, a full year. But I think something that's really neat is that there are some similarities in him to Martin Luther. Absolutely. Um, and, and what they experienced, but then you go back to the principles of reform that we were talking about at the beginning, and Ignatius, Ignatius he, he adhered 
to those principles. And he, he went through these, you know, just like, just scruples that kept him up at night, and he couldn't, and yeah. it, it, was, it was nuts. But he adhered to those principles and, and let God work through him, and you had incredible things come out of it, like the Jesuit order, but the, the Ignatian exercises. Yeah, the um, spiritual exercises, yeah. Trust. Yep, absolutely. Those those grew out of a very authentic experience that he had that was kind of mirroring what Luther went through, in a way. But a very different response there. So. Yeah, that's, that's true. On, on Ignatius' side, we have works like the discernment of spirits and the spiritual exercises that come out of his struggles with scrupulosity, as opposed to uh, the way Luther tried to, you know, solve uh, his issues. Mm-hmm. So, um, really, yep. uh, really, uh, you know, the the we could talk about it all day. We spent an hour, and we're still plenty we haven't covered so um i'm sure folks listening now would love to learn more uh how could they get a hold of the book sure so this this book um has has actually won the 2020 catholic press association uh award the series has at least and so Mm. it's um it's available both on the website for ave maria press and it's available on amazon.com awesome and the name of the book is the church and the age of reformations and uh it's uh like you said a a great series and i'm sure uh we'll we'll be speaking with other people who've written or and probably have spoken with people who've written other books in the series um it's an exciting project so glad to have both of you on the show this morning thank you for joining us thank you thank you so much for having us and stick with us through the break on real presence live as i mentioned at the start of the show today is the feast of saint mark the evangelist We'll be speaking uh, with someone about St. Mark and the Gospel of St. Mark. So stay tuned. Live, engaging, and local, this is Real Presence Live, where we bring you positive and uplifting stories and share the great things happening in our local area on the Real Presence Radio Network. 